days that define your story beyond your life. Welcome to 5-Minute Arrival. The podcast where we look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. Any questions? What do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is a priority. Our priority today is minutes 61 to 65, which began with flash forward or memory flashback. At this point, the audience might not know. Yeah, forward, back. That's the point. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Another space and time. Well, yeah. (laughs) At this point, the audience probably still assumes flashback. Yeah. But we did get our first hint in the film version that this is flash forward because of that bird in the cage in Hannah's drawing. In the script, her drawing is different. The drawing depicts a man and woman, stick figures, inside a flying ship drawn Buck Rogers style. A smaller stick figure sits in the cockpit. The piece is colorful. Louise says, who are these two in back? Hannah says, you and Daddy. The show is called Hannah and Mommy and Daddy Save the World. I'm the captain. Louise's smile sinks. She looks pained. And Louise says, well, that sounds lovely. And then we get the line in the beginning of this segment in the film. You know it's okay to be sad that your dad and I. And I love how Hannah just interrupts. It's like, I know, I'm not. She doesn't even let her finish the sentence. Yeah. But she clearly is. Yeah. Because she's clinging to her pigtails and responding to her mom in very, like, clipped words. Yeah. And then immediately walks away, too. Yeah. Like, she's done. As Louise says, because we both love you very much. And Hannah says, I know, it's just a cartoon, not real. She's already walking away. <laughs> Puts it in her backpack. Then uh, we hear Ian say Louise. So we cut back to the present, as it were. I guess present is fair. Yeah. And Louise, with her head in her hands, Ian says, you all right? And says, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And we get a reverse angle with Weber approaching, and she says, I'm not sure it's something I can I can explain. Weber says, when was your last checkup with Dr. Kettler? Assume something wrong. Now, this is in the script where we have uh, had buildup with Sergeant Rutherford and the crowd nearby. And so Russia has already had a problem, but it's more specific than what's in the film that, that we'll get to at the end of this segment. An hour ago, Weber explains, a black cloud appeared directly over the Russian site, followed by a similar anomaly in Peru. DARPA has something like it, so odds are it's man-made. To throw a blanket over the whole site. We've lost eyes and ears. Last transmission from our spy in Peru said he heard gunfire. Now, in the film, we've already seen gunfire. Not toward the aliens, but people shooting at people. But Ian asks who's attacking whom. Weber says, we don't know, but I'm not taking any chances. You're both confined to base until further notice, which I find interesting considering the film, the base is no one's leaving that base yeah if they tried to they'd have to go through the crowd (laughs) and they're not near any towns in rural montana when he says they can find a base it cuts to a flashback with hannah age 11 saying i'm grounded are you kidding me are you kidding me louis says we had a deal you do your chores or you don't get to sleep over at riley's which i thought is interesting because in the script Mm -hmm. richard riley is the name of the guy richard riley who was in the film but still Mm -hmm. her friend's name is riley so they're yeah. blending details that are unrelated between the time frames. And I don't know why. Might have just been a mistake. Uh, Hannah says, I'd said I'd do it when I get home. Saying it doesn't make it true. Mom, seriously? I am serious, young woman. And Hannah explains, and this is why I'm including this, because it's funny. <laughs> she says, I'm going to miss the movie if I have to stay in vacuum. And the movie is what bonds everyone the rest of the night. Like, they'll be quoting from it, and I won't know the context. And Stephanie will use it as a wedge to separate me from the other girls. <laughs> I know. I immediately thought of you when I read that. <laughs> I'm like, I could totally see you saying that. Yeah. And Louise can't keep a straight face. Hannah's <laughs> just too precocious. Stifling a snicker, Louise says, miss the movie or miss the whole night. Your choice. 
And Hannah says, ugh, I swear you had me just so you could get free child labor. When do I get to live my own life? That's all I ask. And Hannah stomps off, leaving Louise shaking her head. And a door slams, and we cut back to the present. With We get to the part where she is exhausted, and we go to the scene we already saw with Kettler, where she tells the doctor that she's exhausted. So this is where that checkup falls in. In the film, Louise says, I'm okay, I'm going to get some air. I'm okay. Uh, Ian says, all right, and we get a wide shot of her little office space. Lots of heptopod signs. I have a list as usual, but it's not that exciting. Except <laughs> except for one that is on the wall is translated as it wasn't us, which they haven't used that symbol yet. That's the symbol they use, that she uses after the bomb goes off later, but it's already on the wall. But I like when she walks away in this shot because she's not even talking to them anymore. And she's just like, I'm fine. Yep. <laughs> like just to herself she's, she's telling herself she's fine yeah and she has to i mean she can't exactly talk to ian about it no not if they're he's... starting to get closer what's she gonna say oh yeah by the way we're gonna get married and we're gonna have a kid and then we're gonna get divorced mm-hmm. and he's gonna be like well and at, at this point depending on how much she is remembering she might also think the aliens are doing something to her and if they're not doing it to him she doesn't want to tell anyone because then mm-hmm. she's going to be taken out of this situation that's true she wouldn't necessarily fully trust that her visions are reality. Yeah, depending on how much detail. We don't know. <laughs> the, the editing is film detail, so we don't know how much she knows. We just get visuals and sound and not depth of like context. I would also point out that one of the, on her, where is this? This is on her computer. Two of the logograms are, for some reason, shaped like rouleau triangles instead of circles. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I think they're just experimenting. But one of them seems to have the piece for weapon, which was a subplot in the script, that they had to put that on that first vocabulary list mm. and figure out what weapon was. That's going to come up later in the film. So we cut to, well, we linger on Weber and Ian there after she leaves, and then we cut to Louise out in the field, walking toward the shell. Really nice sound design here. There's not really music, but the wind kind of acts like music, and we can hear Louise breathing again, like when she was in her suit before. And that sound continues as we cut two shots of Louise's hand on Hannah's, age eight, and then Louise lying by Hannah in the hospital when she's 15. We get Louise by the shell again, and she's out in the field, and she's turned away now. There's a, I don't know if you saw it, but there's a great visual here. She leans forward, and her head merges with the shell, visually. No, I didn't notice. As she's going into this vision that might be coming from the aliens, visually it combines her head and the shell. That's cool. Because she leans forward. And we get Louise putting a blanket on Hannah in the hospital. We get a closer shot on the same. And then it pans down to Hannah as it cuts to Louise rubbing noses with Hannah, age eight. And then we get the present. And she turns toward the shell and looks up. So visually she's now separated from it. So we get like these series of shots as her head combines, which is nice visual. And then we get Louise tucking in Hannah, age 8, and lying down beside her. Louise lying beside Hannah, age 15, in the hospital. And Louise looks right at the camera for a moment here, which was she shouldn't have done. And then the sound comes back before there's fog behind glass in the nave and a heptopod approaching. Ian says, how are you feeling? Louise says, I'm going to need some sleep, but I'm fine. And we are with Louise sitting on her bed in the barracks. The scene is lit kind of orange, which is weird for the barracks. She looks to her right and up. There's someone there. She looks to her left, and we get a reverse of Ian sitting at a small table, which is to her left. He says, yeah. Then there's this abrupt cut where the camera was on 
the left side of her head, mm-hmm. looking past her at him. Suddenly the camera is on the right side of her head, so that visually they've switched places, even though they're still in the same seats. Mm-hmm. And so the camera is messing with us. And he says, you know, I was doing some reading about this idea that if you immerse yourself into a foreign language, that you can actually rewire your brain. And here's the part of our show where we cut with your commercial. I want to hear Sarah say (laughs) and get a better job. Learning a second language (laughs) at an early early age. age. Yeah, that audio will be here. Yeah. Learning a second language at an early age has a positive effect on intellectual growth and mental development. A child who learns a second language younger will have denser gray matter. By the fifth year of a dual language program, students outperform all comparison groups. And they'll get ahead faster and go to college and get a better job. Because, yes, learning a second language is good for your brain and it yeah. alters the way you think. And Louise, of course, labels it. I th- this is the only time in the film they actually say the calm theory we can talk about. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Ah, Sapir-Whorf. <laughs> that theory has really been through the ringer over the past century. Yes. From love to hated to reworked into neo-Whorfism to other theories that were born from it, like muted group theory. And even on TikTok, there are a whole lot of people making Sapir-Whorf-related videos huh. with examples. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis in 1929 is the linguistic theory that the semantic structure of a language will either shape or limit the way in which a speaker forms their conceptions about the world. It was named after anthropological linguist Edward Sapir and his student Benjamin Whorf. It's also known as the theory of linguistic relativity and linguistic determinism, Whorfian, Whorfianism, It's a principle that suggests that the structure of the language itself will affect the speaker's worldview or cognition, and thus our perceptions are relative to the language that we speak. A little bit of history. The idea was popular among behaviorists in the 1930s. So remember, that was a time of like behavioral psychology, cause and effect, and Pavlov's dog and all that stuff. It lasted into the 1950s and 1960s, increasing in influence then. Behaviorism teaches that behavior is a result of external conditioning. It doesn't take our feelings, emotions, and thoughts into account as far as affecting behavior. As author Lyra Boroditsky writes, the question of whether languages shape the way we think goes back centuries. Charlemagne proclaimed that to have a second language is to have a second soul. But this theory went out of favor in the 1970s and 80s. By the 1990s, the theory was left for dead, writes author Steven Pinkner. The cognitive revolution in psychology, which made the study of pure thought possible, and a number of studies showing the effect of languages on concepts appeared to kill the concept of Sapir-Whorf in the 90s. So Sapir-Whorf's basically been reborn as Neo-Whorfianism, which is essentially a weaker version of the theory. And neo-Warfianism says that language influences a speaker's view of the world, but does not inescapably determine it. 
Why did it fall out of favor? Well, first, I'm just curious. How do you feel about the Well, I'm, I'm guessing specifically it fell out of favor in the 70s because of the like anti-colonial stuff in the 60s. Because you had colonizing countries have been move, moving out of or kicked out of countries they had colonized. And the world was changing its view on how colonization worked. And I'm sure colonizing authorities use this kind of theory to suggest their language is different. They think different than us. We're better than them. And so it's probably a backlash. It's still, there's clearly some accuracy to well, it. Is the, but it's more than just language. Is the theory stating that because we think differently that we think better? Or is no, that just what people decided what to people put do. into it? Because- that goes back a few episodes ago with Alice where you're talking about power and communication mm-hmm. dynamics. Yeah. People in power are going to use whatever they can. And when it comes to your language or the shape of your head, the look of your skin or whatever, they can use to decide someone else is inferior. Yeah. And when they can find science to support it, it makes them sound like they're the good guys. And I would argue they're not even finding science to support it so much as creating and misinterpreting oh, yes. to support it. But I, I never understood this theory. You said that it went away from being ab- like absolutist, but I never understood it. Maybe it's just because I only learned of it exactly. after that. Yeah. I never understood that it had been absolutist. Like you speak this language, you think this yeah, way. We weren't around for like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Superior yeah. Well, because there's going to be so. cultural differences as well. You can speak mm-hmm. Spanish and live in LA, speak Spanish and live in Spain. Your culture is going to be very different and it's going to yeah. alter how you deal. One big problem with the original hypothesis stems from the idea that if a person's language has no word for a particular concept, then the person would not be able to understand that concept. And that's untrue. Language doesn't necessarily control our ability to reason or to have an emotional response to something or some idea. Uh, For example, take the German word Sturmfrei which essentially is the feeling that when you have the whole house to yourself because your parents or roommates are away. But German words are just inherently awesome. Yes. But just because English doesn't have a single word for this idea doesn't mean that we can't understand the concept of it. When we were going to start this show, I wanted to do like weird word of the episode and completely forgot. You know, all these episodes ended. And now in 61 to 65, we have Sturm Fry. So I (laughs) just randomly, we threw one in there. There's also a chicken and egg problem with this theory. Languages, of course, are human creations, tools that we invent and hone to suit our needs. Boroditsky continues, simply showing that speakers of different languages think differently doesn't tell us whether it's language that shapes thought or the other way around. That makes me think of the example that came to me as the Pitahan. Yes. And their, their words, they don't have words for numbers, but that's comes from the fact that they don't value keeping exact number track of how what they have. Like, if you have more fish than me, that matters, but it doesn't matter how many fish, fish you have. have. Yes. Because one in five, five's more. Five and 25, 25 is more. And so they just want to know which is the bigger amount. The amount doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. And also the Porn Purawan's representation there in Australian Aboriginal community. And their representations of time differ strikingly from how other languages document time. Previously, people have been shown to represent time spatially from left to right or right to left, Mm. or from front to back or back to front, and all of these representations are with respect to the body. Pormpura wants instead arrange time according to cardinal direction east to west. 
That is, time flows from left to right when one is facing south, from right to left when one is facing north, toward the body when one is facing east, and away from the body when one is facing west. This reveals a qualitatively different set of representations of time, with time organized in a coordinate frame that's independent from... And would then be relative to the conversation. Yes. Exactly. Because where you're standing and where you're facing is going to And I thought that was pretty cool like for, for Arrival. <laughs> a few other things. Today's Neo-Warfianism is basically just a weaker version, again, of Sapir Whorf, that our thoughts are subtly influenced by grammatical structures of our native language. And one area of investigation here focuses on how the grammatical gender of nouns affect the way we perceive the corresponding objects. And muted group theory in communication studies, which was created by Edwin Ardner and Shirley Ardner, and then later developed by Cherise Cramaray, is a communication theory that focuses on how marginalized groups are muted and excluded via the use of language, power dynamics in language. The main idea of this theory is that language serves its creators better than those in other groups who then have to learn to use the language as best they can. So the term mutedness refers to a group's inability to express themselves due to this inequity. The theory describes the relationship between the dominant group and the subordinate groups as being as follows. One, the dominant group is contributing mostly to the formulation of the language system, including the social norms and vocabulary. And two, members from the subordinate groups have to learn and use the dominant language to express themselves. And we can see this play out in many ways. One example would be in how male dominance affects more than just the way the sexes speak, but the content and structure of the language itself. Women are often defined by their relationship to men. What do you call a single man, a married man, other man you call a mister? How do you refer to a woman? Miss, Mrs., Miss. She's determined by her relationship context with a man, but oh, a man is not <laughs> referred to based on his relationship context with a woman. Other examples of this would be just whatever the power structure is. If you were going into a new, into a workplace, you would have to accommodate your communication based on the people who are in power rather than use your own. That's why in college classrooms, you will have a Western standard. I'm not sure what the exact word is, but in terms of like which grammar to follow or things like African-American vernacular English. Or one of the standards for... The speech 101 that we both teach from time to time is their speeches have to be in English. Right. Because that's the structure we have in the college in this country. Yeah. Mutedness doesn't equal silence, though. It just occurs when people can't articulate their ideas, regardless of time and space, without having to change their language or the way they're using language to meet the dominant group's vocabulary. The English language, for example, was mainly built by men, giving men an advantage over women so women cannot express their thoughts through their own words because their language use is limited by the rules of a man's language. This theory, I think, also needs some updating. Of course, it's giving like a very binary view yeah. of gender and isn't really including anybody but outside of, of how you perceive men and women. <laughs> the exactly. theory itself is proving its own. Now, do you think this movie is good in its presentation of this hypothesis? Because I think a lot of mm. viewers of this movie probably think the movie is suggesting that Sapir Whorf is literally true, that what alters Louise's brain is learning the language. Yeah, there's a lot of crit- critique of this film because they argue it goes 
too far in taking like a literal view of superior Which is where the explanation of the language from like the short story helps is because in order to understand the language, she has to understand how they think out of order. Because that thing I did that I read, I think it was last episode, where that one line through the logogram was parts of different clauses, but it was the first thing they wrote. And so they, they create their language out of their understanding of time. I like the film because I think it is important and good to think about these concepts and to talk about them. Especially if you're dealing with aliens. Yeah. (laughs) And the film is introducing the concepts in a way that I think are more palatable or digestible for people who probably don't have any background or understanding of the concepts at all. Because if you're not a comm major, why would you? I mean, these aren't other than maybe like a couple lines about Sapir Whorf in a public speaking textbook. Mm -hmm. Most people wouldn't. (laughs) <laughs> wouldn't have reason to think about this so it's on the vocab quiz you know. yeah <laughs> i think that that it's good i think it would be very difficult to extend all of that nuance in a hollywood like 100 minute film and maybe film isn't the best avenue that's for what that. this show is for you get yeah. all that nuance <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it made me think of that film you you like that i didn't really enjoy very much Which? Pontypool. Is oh Pontypool, a- yeah Would that have anything to do with this? It is sort of like the corruption of what this idea represents. (laughs) If language itself gets, it works as a sort of allegory where language itself gets corrupted because it's set in Canada or in a location where they are required to do everything in French and in English. And so it's set in a place where language matters on a daily basis for everyone because signs have to be bilingual. And yeah, language gets corrupted and brains get corrupted. It's the opposite of what's happening to Louise. Hers is probably getting better. So one other point that I wanted to bring up because I found it (laughs) pretty fascinating is how in the English language, when we're talking about emotion, Mm. we say we are the thing. I am angry. I am sad. I am. Whereas in the majority of other languages, they say I feel sad or I have sadness. But in our language, we we say we literally we are it. our emotions. And I wonder how that plays into <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Like yeah. our identity being our emotion rather than our identity being separate from emotion and emotion being thing, something that we experience. I don't know if this is accurate as so much as, um, what's it, mean world syndrome, where it's just what we see. But I think Americans are generally presented as feeling their emotions more strongly mm-hmm. and like extremely than other cultures. Maybe that's kind of why. Yeah. Is that we identify with our emotion instead of. In a way, yes. But in a way, also, no. Because I'm thinking about other countries that are much more open in their expressions of grief or their expressions of. Open doesn't mean extreme. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas here, there's like a toxic. Wailing and fainting at a funeral or jumping on a grave, although we do that too in movies. So. (laughs) But it's like. I just thought that was super interesting about how we say we are emotions rather than feel emotions. Yeah, and the the scene that was a while ago for us, but in the script here, she says she is exhausted. Yeah. She does explain the theory briefly. The theory that she's looking to her left when she Mm -hmm. says this, so she's looking at Ian. It's the theory that the language you speak determines how you think. She looks up to her right, so the scene is setting up that someone is to her right. She's talking to two different Mm -hmm. people, but we don't see who. Then back to her left, so Ian. And he says, yeah, it affects how you see everything. It was, I'm curious. Now, before I get to the question he asks, he's not the one who asked this question in the script. It's Dr. Kettler who asks. Dr. Kettler asked this at a checkup 
he writes give weapon on a piece of paper, which is what they're supposed to tell the aliens, the heptopods. And she sees it not in English, but in heptopod B. So in the moment, she sees the la- the heptopod language instead of what he writes. And that's when she actually gets grounded from going in the ship temporarily, which is when things start to escalate in the script. She's not there. But Ian says, are you dreaming in their language? And she shakes her head. She says, I may have had a few dreams, but I don't. And we hear the canary sound in the scene. And she looks at Ian, then looks up to her right and says, I don't think that it makes me unfit to do this job. And we get a cut to what she's looking at. And it is, I think it's Costello, but I can't tell because he's up really close. Really good detail on the heptopod because one of the heptopods is right there in her barracks. She's feeling (laughs) a bit defensive. Yeah. (laughs) A little disoriented. I mean, her sleep's affected. She's saying that she has dreams. Really, she's having visions, but I think she just doesn't want to say that. They're not dream. I mean, maybe she's also having dreams, but I think she chooses well, this her is a word dream, carefully. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the dream, yeah, yeah, she's being very careful with the language. The heptopod makes a noise to respond, and we cut to the same barracks, different angles. She's asleep in that bed, and now the lighting is white. And someone knocks at the door. She gets up, goes to the door, and it's Weber. And he says, "Did you sleep?" She says, "A little." And he says, "Do you know Mandarin?" <laughs> That's what you want to wake up to. Yeah. Do you know Mandarin? <laughs> In the script, this is after she has been sidelined for the dreams. So we then we've essentially jumped forward in the script just now between that dream and this waking up. And while she was sidelined in the script, this isn't part of the movie. Ian helps them make the computer be able to translate for them so they don't need Louise, which is ultimately what they want, but not good at this point because she feels challenged by it. We cut to the inside the a big tent, not the usual big tent. A different one. And Weber leads Louise up to the front. We hear random people talking. Someone says it is shifting and they're looking at a picture of the shell. So I'm not sure why that line is clear. But maybe the shell is moving. And Colonel Weber says we're getting a lot of activity at at a Sichuan site. Rumored to hold a few nuclear warheads. China may be bringing a nuke to their alien visitors to trade or to detonate. Well, this is in the script. Sorry. Either way, it's bad news for us. Louise says what about their translators? Colonel Weber says, we still have a few operatives on the ground, and as far as we can tell, you're the only one who's cracked the language. Our foreign counterparts have reverted to the old days of bartering, or worse. In the film, Weber tells her, the voice you're about to hear belongs to Chinese military chief, General Shang, and he gives her headsets. This is all silhouettes as they're up at the front of the room. And he says, pull it up. we got a satellite feed here of who he's talking to if you want to look. The satellite feed is not very interesting. It's a person you can barely see standing on some platform. Louise listens, says, wait, go back, stop. He's saying that each of the 12 is offering advanced technology. Go back again and play. Our science team is attempting to decode the sets. Sets, I don't know what that means. Something about advantage, suits, honor, and flowers. I I don't know. That's all. And she gives the headphones back to Weber. And he says, I don't know what it means either. An hour ago, China mobilized forces, and now Russia's following suit. Shang's about to start something. Now, this is technically wrong because right. the news footage before showed that they already mobilized forces. <laughs> so I don't know what mobilized means here. Uh, and now Russia's following suit. Shang's about to start something. And Louise hears that and says, following suit. Suits. Suits. Honors. Flowers. Colonel. Those are all tile sets in Mahjong. And um, in a roundabout way to point out why she's once again wrong. <laughs> it's fine. She's not an expert on Mahjong. I'm not either. I used to play the really lame 
version on the computer that I think was a lot simpler than the actual game. About 30 years ago. Mahjong tiles are divided into three categories. Simples, Honors, and Bonus. Simples is divided into three suits, dots, bamboo, and characters. Honors is divided into winds and dragons. Bonus is divided into flowers and seasons. Further, because 12 is in this movie a lot, Mahjong is played with 144 tiles, 12 by 12. Four sets each of 1 through 9 of dots, 1 through 9 of bamboo, 1 through 9 of characters, the four winds, east, south, west, north, three dragons, red, green, and white, four flowers, which is plum blossom, orchid, chrysanthemum, and bamboo, and four seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter. Now, only one of the words she just said is a suit in Mahjong. Another is a tile category, and the other is just the word suit. So saying those are all is inappropriate, grammatically. <laughs> she still makes her point. but uh, She says, God, are they, are they using a game to converse with their heptopods? And uh, Weber says, maybe. Why? And she says, well, let's say that I taught them chess instead of English. Every conversation would be a game. Every idea expressed through opposition, victory, defeat. You see the problem. This part bugged me. Why? <laughs> well, the type of language and the way it's taught influence both the response and our interpretation of the response. It's the paradigm through which we view the world oppositional versus collaborative mm -hmm. but I, I don't know it's like she's missing that english is like if you are teaching them english that's the language of colonization and power it's the language of international business and politics the second most used language in the world it has over a million words i don't i don't know i'm having trouble expressing why that just I think Bugged it's, to me, I like think, chess instead of English. Like English is somehow not <laughs> concerned with power. Yeah. And that because they're using Mahjong, or if you taught them chess, that that would make them more like you're teaching them through an oppositional or a power structure lens that isn't present in English. But yeah, it is what present. she's saying is something that could be interesting to watch happen, but I don't think it's accurate. It's like the simplified version of the negative version of Sapir Whorf. It's like, she's, this assumes that they don't have a basis already as to how they understand the world, <laughs> which I guess is the point. She's being shaped by them, so in the moment she might assume they're being, they can be shaped by her. She says, if all I ever gave you was a hammer, he says, everything's a nail. And they says, we need to ask the big question, but we don't know what the big question is yet because the segment ends. Yeah, that just happened. Thank you for listening. Follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 5-Minute Arrival. Or go to lemmingdrops.com for links. I used to think this was the beginning of your story.